Today on The Matt Wall Show, our culture has turned womanhood into a costume for men to wear. We'll discuss the latest example. It's a pretty ridiculous example. Also, Colin Powell died of COVID, and the media are quick to point out that he had comorbidities. But why is this the one time that they actually want to talk about COVID comorbidities? And the Loudoun County prosecutor defends his decision to send a rapist student to another school where he proceeded to rape again. His defense is not very convincing. Plus, outrage over Hooters. Did you know that they require their waitresses to wear skimpy outfits? Shocking stuff. I had no idea. In our daily cancellation, we will deal with a feminist college professor who says that men have an unfair advantage in the workplace because of all the bonding we guys do in the bathroom. There are a number of problems with that theory of hers, and we'll discuss that and so much more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, something we all uh, deal with, uh, and especially as we grow older, is fatigue during the day. You know, especially when you get there. So I don't know what it is about two or three o'clock when you just feel you feel yourself crashing, but you can't sprawl out on the floor and take a nap in the middle of the office. Trust me, I've learned the hard way. Uh, but you also can't just keep drinking more and more caffeine because that's not good for you either. And that's why we are introducing a new way to start your day: Super Beats Heart Chews. They're a tasty treat that give you the energy you need, and they're good for you as well. No more afternoon coffees, energy drinks, candy for a quick pick-me-up. You can add two delicious uh, plant-based Superbeet Heart Chews chews to your morning routine and promote heart-healthy energy for your day without a caffeine crash. Because Superbeet's Heart Chews are unique, they're clinically researched, and they just flat-out work. They give you that energy, and you feel it, and there's no crash later like there is so often with caffeine. Do more for your heart and treat yourself with Superbeet's Heart Chews. Um, you can join over 1 million customers, get free shipping and returns, a 90-day money-back guarantee. And right now, you get a free 30-day supply with your first purchase at superbeats.com slash Walsh. That's superbeats.com slash Walsh. So we begin today with perhaps the most important news story of our time. This is an urgent controversy, one which demands our full attention. The question at issue is this. Who was the first man to wear a dress? Was it Billy Porter or Harry Styles? That's what we find ourselves debating today. Uh, and I think for good reason. You know, I can't imagine any subject more salient, more paramount than this. You may remember about a year ago when the uh, pop star Harry Styles appeared on the cover of Vogue, dressed like a nine-year-old girl who just raided her grandmother's closet. And this was, we were informed at the time, a historic moment. I mean, a man in a dress. What courage, what innovation. Previous generations won world wars and they invented space travel. We put our male pop stars in dresses. That is our contribution to the historical conversation. And what a contribution it is. When, all, when, you know, when it was all said and done, of course, most of us thought that the story was over. Harry Styles had worn a dress. Peace and harmony had been established across the globe. Mankind had reached its zenith. Utopia was upon us. Or so we thought. Little did we know that things were far more complicated. There was a darker side to Harry's blouse. There were skeletons in the closet, or perhaps out of the closet in this case. As has been reported uh, this morning by CNN, BuzzFeed, Yahoo News, The Daily Beast, The Los Angeles Times, TMZ, many of our nation's other most uh, prestigious publications, Billy Porter has emerged all these months later to talk about the pain and trauma that Harry Styles' skirts have caused him. Now, Porter is an actor, I think. Honestly, I'm not exactly sure what he actually does for a living or why anybody knows his name. As far as I can tell, his primary occupation is to dress in tacky pantsuits and attend award shows. Somehow he's found a way to monetize that hobby of his. More power to him, I suppose. And he's not happy that Harry Styles is stealing his, his um, cross-dressing drag queen thunder. From the CNN report, it says, 
In an interview with British paper The Sunday Times, Porter argued that there was a disconnect in the opportunities afforded to him as a black gay man and those given to Styles. Quote, I feel like the fashion industry has accepted me because they have to, he said. I created the conversation about non-binary fashion, and yet Vogue still puts Harry Styles, a straight white man, in a dress on the cover for, their, for, their first, uh, for the first time. I was the first one doing it, and now everybody's doing it. I'm not dragging Harry Styles, but he doesn't care. He's just doing it because it's the thing to do. This is politics for me. This is my life. I had to fight my entire life to get to the place where I could wear a dress to the Oscars. All Styles has to do is be white and straight. Then he later on went on to say, I changed the whole game. I personally changed the whole game. And that's not ego. That's just a fact. This is his, he's fought his whole life. This is, the, this, is, this is it. This is the achievement of his life, is to wear a dress to the Oscars. And it's not ego. You know, uh, he, he wants to be sure that we understand it. Not at all. Why would we think that a man who cries to the media because he doesn't get to be the only guy wearing a dress has an ego? Billy Porter's a humble man. I mean, he's a man of dignity, a man of humility, prancing on the red carpet in a ball gown. Yeah, he's prancing, but he's doing it in a dignified way. But is it true that he invented the concept of cross-dressing? Well, no, of course it's not, not remotely. This is one of the many contradictions we run into with the proponents of gender fluidity. On one hand, they insist that, you know, nothing they're doing is novel or unprecedented. They assure us that all of their wildest gender inventions have a long and storied history. They say that there were, you know, trisexual, genderqueer, sadomasochistic furries back in George Washington's time. Maybe he was one himself. Who knows? Traditional cultures throughout the globe have expansive ideas about gender, they tell us. You could hack your way into the Amazon rainforest and stumble across an uncon uncontacted tribe, and no doubt that tribe will have its own sex reassignment clinics. This is all quite widespread. It's universal. It's in keeping with historical precedent, they say. But then on the other hand, when a man puts on a miniskirt and winks at a camera, they want us to throw him a parade as if he just landed on the moon. So all of this stuff is normal and universal and totally ordinary and also revolutionary and bold and unique and daring. All at once. Well, okay then. And yet, there's something revealing, I think, about this controversy, if we can call it that. Because we notice again, in perhaps you know, the most direct and explicit way that we've seen yet, how womanhood has been turned into a trophy to be won, or a flag to be captured. Billy Porter, other guys like him, they, they wear femininity like a Halloween costume. And it looks ridiculous on him. It looks ugly, profane, vulgar. He appropriates it. He makes a mockery of it. And he demands to be celebrated. Now, sure, anybody can wear a dress. That's precisely why it's no achievement to wear one. But dresses are designed to accentuate the female form. If you have no female form to accentuate, at best, you'll end up looking silly, like a dog in a sweater. Worse, because you're ridiculing, uh, and, and you look worse than that because you are ridiculing the feminine, even while trying to claim it as your own. You have turned womanhood into a performance, into a comedy, a not very funny one, more of a farce, a tragedy. But there are still more direct ways of going about that, of course. Like Rachel Levine, who's the uh, biological male HHS official who, according to an announcement for the Biden administration this morning, has now been sworn in as a four-star admiral, admiral 
making him the U.S. Public Health Service's, quote, first ever female four-star admiral. That's the official announcement from the Biden administration. That's in their, that's in their press release. First ever female four-star admiral is a man. Female. They're not even saying woman, but female. He's been given not just the social designation, but the biological one as well. Womanhood was awarded to him, like the four-star rank. It's a badge that he can wear around on his chest, like his fake breasts. It's just a, it's a, it's a fake thing that he can wear around. It's an object. That's what these people have made of womanhood. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, as someone who, as I've told you many times, who struggles with um, nausea, uh, nausea just when I turn on the news and see what's happening in the world, but, but also when I, when I uh, especially when I'm driving, or not really when I'm driving, but I'm in the back of a car. That's what it really hits me is if I'm in the passenger in the, in the back of a car at an Uber or something, that's when the nausea hits me. And that's why I've gone through different solutions in my life until I stumbled upon Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that's been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, it's non-drowsy, and it provides all-natural relief with zero side effects for as long as needed. This is the solution to your troubles. Uh, relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that's been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. And if you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift as well. As the world's opening back up, don't let the fear of nausea keep you on the sidelines. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for my listeners. If you go to reliefband.com, use promo code Walsh, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use our promo code Walsh for 20% off. All right, so um, quick quick uh, PSA, if I, if I may, as we're uh, once again on the road here, as our uh, world tour continues. And... A note to uh, pilots, if I could, on planes. You know, there's this thing, there's a concept of, uh, of TMI, too much information. And I think if you're, and, and far be it for me to give you any advice whatsoever. Uh, but this is a mistake that pilots make sometimes. Where they, they, and I guess they figure, you know, we're sitting back there. We want to know everything that's going on. We don't. At least I'll speak for myself. I don't want to know. I don't, I don't want to know what's happening up there. I just want you to get us there. I don't even like to see when, when the door cracks open and I see the cockpit and I see all the buttons and the levers and everything. And it just looks like for it, it looks to me like 600 opportunities for things to go terribly wrong. So I don't like to know. I don't like to see. But sometimes the captains, you know, they'll come on the intercom and they'll, they'll give information. So we were about to take off on our flight yesterday to head here. And uh, the, the pilot comes on the intercom and he says, he says, uh, he apologizes for the delay. Which is all he needed to do because there was a delay. Just say, oh, you know, we're, we're working something out. It's, it's a delay. But instead he tells us that uh, they're having a problem with one of the engines. And he says, it's no big deal, but it doesn't start like normal. And so it has to be manually started. No big deal. It's just that it's a problem with the engine. We're about to be 35,000 feet in the air going 500 miles an hour. Uh, and we have a faulty engine. No big deal. And it probably is no big deal. But, I, you know, I'm ignorant. I don't know anything about any of this. None of us do. So as far as we're concerned, it's, it's basically pixie dust that keeps us up in the sky. It's magic. We're flying on the, the wings of angels, basically. And so if you give us a little bit of information and we don't have the rest to fill in the context, 
then all we're left with is our imagination. And that's the problem. So unless you're going to give us a full on lesson in aerodynamics to explain to us why the faulty engine isn't a big deal, then don't tell us anything. Because then I'm thinking you need, you need to m- manually start it from outside of the plane is what he said. So, so what happens if the engine goes out in the air and it needs to be manually restarted from outside? Is someone crawling out on the wing? Is that one of the jobs of the person in the exit row? Is that like, I've always wondered when they tell you in the exit row and they come up and they say, oh, you're in the exit row here. You know, you have to be ready to help us. And nobody ever asks, what exactly are we doing for you in case things go wrong? Maybe this is one of them. You're closest to the exit row. Pop that thing open, climb out there, get the engine started. Uh, anyway. And then they also told us before we got on the flight, the, uh, the woman at the, the gate said that uh, we should be happy um, and uh, we should you know, say, say hello to the captain on the way in because uh, he's, a, he's a really good pilot. He's one of the best. And then that made me think, well, this is the first time I've been specifically told about a really good pilot. What about all the other flights I'm on? Are those the bad ones? All right. Uh, we'll, we'll start here. This is from Breitbart. It says, President Joe Biden expressed his regret Monday that former Secretary of State Colin Powell died of complications from the coronavirus despite being fully vaccinated. Biden commented on Powell's death after a surprise appearance at the White House honoring the state and national Uh, Teachers of the Year on Monday. And here's what he told reporters. He said, by the way, he had serious underlying conditions, as you know. That's the problem. It wasn't that the vaccinations aren't good. He had two very serious underlying conditions and unfortunately didn't work. God love him. Unfortunately didn't work. The vaccine didn't work, it sounds like is what he's saying. So this is this interesting thing that's happening now where um, President Biden... The Democrats, the media, you know, I say these as if they're all mutually exclusive groups, which they aren't, but they're very quick to tell us that Colin Powell, he was, uh, I think, 84 years old. He had multiple comorbidities. Uh, You know, he had had multiple serious illnesses, 84 years old. He gets COVID. He's, He's been fully vaccinated. He dies. And they're very quick to tell us about the comorbidities. And Hey, by the way, he's, he was very, very old and he was, and he was sick and, um, and you know his his time was 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 coming very soon, unfortunately. Anyway, and and so you know, it's 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 not that the vaccines didn't work. This is the one time I can't think of any other time. This is the one time when they've when they have made a point to focus on comorbidities, on the fact that someone's older. The one time they do it. In fact, it, this a, a total role reversal because Tucker Carlson was talking about. Uh, Colin Powell's death on his show yesterday. And he mentions how he was fully vaccinated and he got COVID and he died. And that's true. And this morning, the media is blasting Tucker Carlson for not making a, a, a point to highlight the comorbidities. When usually they're the ones who aren't highlighting that fact. Why are they doing it? Well, obviously, because they're trying to defend the dignity and honor of the vaccine. That this, that's why this is the one time uh, when the comorbidities actually matter. If it wasn't for that, you know, if he was not fully vaccinated and he died with COVID at the age of 84 and along alongside a bunch of other uh, terminal illnesses, they wouldn't be mentioning those illnesses at all. We know that. All right, next we've got from the Daily Wire, it says, as we continue to track the situation in Loudoun County, Loudoun County Prosecutor Buda. 
Bibarage defended the decision to transfer a boy accused of sexually assaulting a female student in a girl's bathroom to a different high school in the same school district late last week, telling local media that the boy had no prior record. The Daily Wire reported earlier in October that Scott Smith's daughter was allegedly raped in a high school bathroom by a male student who reportedly identifies as gender fluid. Um, So we know about the background there. Then the 15-year-old student, who was, according to Smith, charged with several counts of sexual assault, uh, including a charge of forcible rape and a charge of forcible sodomy, ostensibly violent crimes. The student, however, was transferred to another school within the same district and reportedly went on to commit a second sexual assault. Bibaraj, according to Smith and uh, Smith's attorney, Elizabeth Lancaster, pushed for jail time against Smith, who was slapped with charges of disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. And Bibaraj, of course, knew when Smith showed up to the to the school board meeting and was extremely, extremely angry because his daughter had just been raped in a bathroom um, and then gets arrested, Bibaraj knew exactly all, all of the background on it. He's the prosecutor. And yet he still pushed for jail time for this father. Think about how evil and twisted that is. And just cruel and callous. You know that this is the father of a, of a young girl who's been raped in a school in your district. And he commits the crime of getting upset at a school board meeting. Upset after they, they just lied to his face and said that no rape occurred. And you want to throw him in jail for that. Just complete and total callousness and cruelty on the part of these people. Um, Bibaraj told a Washington, D.C. news outlet, quote, we believe based on the facts that he had no history of having done this prior to this offense that was alleged. Um, she said because of that, there was a belief it was unlikely he would reoffend. She said her uh, office consulted with the family of the victim and the office of probation about the decision. She said the judge agreed with the recommendation. She then suggested that there are unreported details about the alleged attack. I would ask this for people to be patient because, as we know, what sometimes is reported initially is not then what the end result of all the facts are. So her excuse for sending this um, alleged rapist to another school where he allegedly raped again is that he had no prior history of committing rape, except for the one he just committed. So what, what she's saying is, yeah, except for that. Except for that, he hadn't raped anybody. And so that's why we sent him to another school. Again, cruelty and callousness. Total disregard for the safety of, uh, of, of the kids in the school. Not at all concerned about what is actually the right thing to do. That, that doesn't even factor in. Related issue here, Terry McAuliffe, as we head to the uh, gubernatorial election in early November in Virginia. Now, we know that Terry McAuliffe has gotten himself into trouble because he said during a debate that, t- that parents should not be the ones deciding what their, their, their own kids are taught in school. That's what he said. Those were his own words. And uh, he's, he, it was a mistake to say that out loud. That's, that's one of those things that uh, you shouldn't think at all. But if you do, you shouldn't say it out loud when you're running for governor of Virginia. And so this has been a, this has been a 
a, a real crisis for him heading into the election. And to, to, to show you how bad it is, here is an ad that the Terry McAuliffe campaign just put out as we're just two weeks away from the election. And this is their kind of closing argument. Listen to this. As parents, Dorothy and I have always been involved in our kids' education. We know good schools depend on involved parents. That's why I want you to hear this from me. Glenn Youngkin's taking my words out of context. I've always valued the concerns of parents. It's why as governor, we scaled back standardized testing, expanded pre-K, and invested a billion dollars in public schools. I'm Terry McCall, candidate for governor, and I sponsored this ad because working together, we can give our kids the education they deserve. Yeah, that is never a good sign when you're running a campaign and you have to put out an ad that contains the words, I've been taken out of context. That is never a good sign, especially two weeks from the election. And it's not true, of course, he's not being taken out of context. That's exactly what he said. Parents should not be the one, the ones to decide what their kids are taught. That's what he said. You know, that, that's the quote from his own mouth. We all heard him say it. Now, when he says taken out of context, what he means is, I didn't mean to say that out loud. And that's not the same thing as being taken out of context. But never a good sign when, when this is your closing argument that, oh, I've been taken out of context. That means, of course, that you're, you're on defense. That this, this is almost at the level of, not quite, but uh, who was that Republican in Delaware years ago who put out the ad, I think running for Senate, put out an ad saying, I'm not a witch. She had to defend herself from charges of being a witch. And, uh, you know, this is not quite as bad as that, but uh, it's, still, it's still pretty bad. All right. So here are two people that we're going to lump together, seemingly unrelated, Stacey Abrams and Pete Buttigieg. First, there's a documentary about Pete Buttigieg coming out for some reason. And there's a trailer, and for some reason, I'm going to play that trailer for you now. Here it is. Watch it. Anything you want to make sure that I ask him? You spent so much of your life hiding who you truly were. Did you feel like you were able to be your true self for the campaign trail? A hometown boy who went to Harvard and became a Rhodes Scholar, only to return to the city where he grew up. He's also a newlywed. I made Pete promise that we would have fun. This is the only chance you'll ever get to vote for a Maltese American left-handed Episcopalian gay war veteran, Mayor Melendez. <laughs> it's a leap going from being a mayor to being a presidential candidate. But I realized I had something to offer that was just different. I, I mean, there are literally, literally dozens of people who will be waiting to watch that documentary. That's probably... That's probably a generous estimate. Now, uh, I'll have something to say about that in a minute. But like I said, I'm going to put these together. We also have Stacey Abrams. She was campaigning uh, in Virginia for Terry McAuliffe. And he's brought in Stacey Abrams. He's brought in Kamala Harris. He's got, you know, Joe Biden helping him out. So he's bringing in all these people from outside for this gubernatorial race. All these people who are not who are not residents of Virginia. And he's bringing them in to help him out. But 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 remember... You know, at a school board meeting, they don't want outsiders. If you're, if you're not from Virginia, if you're not a resident, or at least a former, a former resident like me, then you don't belong there. And they say that while their, their uh, gubernatorial candidate is enlisting, it's, it's pretty much nothing but people from outside of Virginia. What does that tell you? So here's Stacey Abrams campaigning in Virginia for Terry McAuliffe, and here's what she had to say. You see, I'm here to tell you that just because you win doesn't mean you're one. 
We've got folks who are ready to take back what they think is theirs, but they are not entitled to our progress. They are not entitled to our justice. They are not entitled to our votes. But either we use them or we lose them. I come from a state where I was not entitled to become the governor. But as an American citizen and a citizen of Georgia, I'm going to fight for every person who has the right to vote to be able to cast that vote. And here in Virginia, you need to cast that vote for Terry McAuliffe. You need to cast that vote for Hala Ayala. You need to cast that vote for Mark Herring. And while you're at it, go all the way down the ballot. Don't stop till you reach the bottom. And then double check your work. Because we know Bovu all the way through. Because we know what is possible. Okay, first of all, uh, you're, you're actually correct, Stacey Abrams, that you're not entitled to become governor. She says that like it's a bad thing. I wasn't entitled to be governor. Well, yeah, of course you're not entitled to be governor. No one is entitled to be governor. That's that's exactly our point. But she still has not accepted the results of of that election, which is this is an ongoing insurrection being led by the, the militant, radical insurrectionist Stacey Abrams in the state of Georgia. Ongoing. She has not accepted those results. She still claims to be basically the shadow governor of, uh, of, of Georgia. But when you, you watch that clip, you see the thing with, with Pete Buttigieg. These two are similar in that these are two of the most incredibly unimpressive, relentlessly unappealing people in, in all of politics. And they're also losers. I mean, they're, they're making a documentary about a guy who was mayor of South Bend, I think it was, and then he runs for president and he, and he fails miserably, and then they make him transportation secretary. And then he proceeds to take a two-month paid, paid vacation in the middle of a transportation crisis, and he gets a documentary. Stacey Abrams has just never done anything. What has she done? Why is she a thing? She's like Billy, this is, a, this is, a, this is the political Billy Porter. She's a thing. We all know her name. Nobody knows why. She's never done anything at all. She has no talent, no charisma. She looks a little bit better in a dress than Billy Porter, but not much. And, and, but you see how this, this, this is what makes them, they're almost impressive in their unimpressiveness because they have the most powerful PR team in the world, which is the American media trying to make these two, Stacey Abrams and Pete Buttigieg, into rock stars. Doing everything they can to make them into rock stars, to make them a thing. And it still isn't taken. I mean, if you have that kind of um, PR support, and you, if you have that sort of marketing, this is really millions and millions of dollars of marketing that are behind them. Officially and unofficially. And that should be enough to make almost anyone, at least on camera, seem like a star. You, you could just pull like any random person off the street, put, put millions of dollars of marketing behind them, uh, put the entire media behind them, and you can make them into a star. And it still has not really worked with Stacey Abrams and Pete, Pete Buttigieg. That, that's, what, that's what nothings they are. Absolute nothings. 
For them, it's not like you're pulling a person off the street to try to make them starve. This is like trying to pull a, a roll of paper towels off of your kitchen counter and, and making that into a rock star. Harder job. Okay, uh, we got to talk about this Hooters thing, which is really important. But before we get there, one other brief thing I want to play for you. This is uh, John Stewart in an interview had some thoughts, some I thought quite incoherent thoughts about cancel culture. Let's listen to that. People that talk about cancel culture never seem to shut the f- up about it. <laughs> like, there's more speech now than ever before. It's not you can't say, it's that when you say it, look, the internet has democratized criticism. What do we do for a living? We talk sh- We criticize, we postulate, we opine, we make jokes. And now other people are having their say. And that's not cancel culture. That's relentlessness. Yeah, he, he didn't say it, but he's this he's going with. It's not cancel culture. It's accountability. Right. That's what he's going with. And we are we're simply pretending and or, or at least John Stewart is pretending and wants us to pretend um, that. You know, or, or rather, we're ignoring all of the canceled people who weren't even public figures, weren't even trying to make a statement. I mean, think about this. There are so many examples. You couldn't possibly list them all. One that comes immediately to mind is uh, what about that? You know, the, the truck driver um, who was driving along and, and, you know, was like cracking his knuckles and made the mistake of, of you know, when, when he was cracking one of his fingers to make the okay gesture incidentally. And next thing you know, that guy's got the internet mob coming after him. He loses his job. He loses everything. Is that, is that John Stewart? Is that just relentlessness? Okay, that was someone who wasn't trying to make any statement at all. He was just living his life. And the mob tracked him down and ruined it for no reason. This is one of the hallmarks of cancel culture. No, cancel culture is not just, I, ha- I, I uh, express an opinion and people are dis- disagree with that opinion and they let you know about it. That's not cancel culture. People let me know every day that they disagree with my opinions. A cancel culture is um, one of one of the hallmarks is when you go, they go digging for it. They go looking. Okay, let's let's find a reason. Let's dig up a reason to ruin someone. John Gruden. I mean, he, he wasn't out making any public statements at all to anyone. This is not him being held accountable for the opinions that he chose to express. You know something, with, with John Gruden, if he had stood up during a press conference after a game and had said some of those things that he said in the email and he lost his job for it, I, I wouldn't be defending him. I would say, okay, fine. Because you're you're a football coach. Your job is to coach football. You chose to stand in front of a microphone and do that. When when the people you work for, they have no interest in in that. Okay, so you you chose to take it this direction, knowing the kind of environment that we live in. 
Um, you have have chosen to bring this kind of heat on your employer, and yeah, you're going to face the consequences for that. You should, yeah, football coach just stick to football, but that's not what happened. These were private conversations from a from a uh, not only in a private email, from, but from a private email address, not even like an employer's email address. This is from a Gmail account or a Yahoo account or something. Um, and they went digging for it to ruin his life. That's cancel culture. Cancel culture is also ideological. It's also political. It's, it is uh, inconsistent in the people that it targets. So, I mean, you, you could call it whatever you want. Can- cancel culture is just the label that we've come up with for this social phenomenon. If you don't like cancel culture, call it something else. We can go back to just good old-fashioned pitchfork mob, but, but there's no denying the phenomenon itself. You can deny it all you want. People can see what's right in front of their face. All right, so there's been uh, controversy over the new uniforms for Hooters waitresses. Um, apparently, the, the, way, the, the uniforms are, have been judged uh, too skimpy um, for, for the waitresses. It, I guess they, Hooters had assigned new shorts that are not really shorts, but they're more like bikini bottoms. And... Um, the waitresses are very upset about this, and they were making their TikToks, and they were posting on Instagram and saying, look, look at what we're being for. This is objectification. We're being forced to wear this. This is not what I signed up for when I went to work for something called Hooters. And now here's the latest from the New York Post. It says, Hooters rump-roasted new uniform policy has bottomed out. What? Hooters rump-roasted new uniform policy has bottomed out. I don't even know what that means, New York Post. That, that doesn't mean anything. Just get, get to the point or get to the, the article. Okay, I will. It says the company now says it is reversing its recent mandate that female servers trade in their already short shorts for new skin-tight bikini cut bottoms. Um, a Hooters America representative wrote an email to Business Insider, quote, as we continue to listen and update the, the images of the Hooters girls, we're clarifying that they have the option to choose from traditional uniforms or the new ones. Quote, they can determine which style of shorts best fits their body style and personal image. The cheeky company's turnaround came after some of its servers took to social media to rip the new underwear shorts. Employee Kristen Songer said in a trending TikTok video, oh, look, a wedgie, um, added Songer, this is why all the Hooters girls are upset because this is not what I agreed to wear a year ago when I was hired. Still, there are some others who um, appear to plan to, they're still going to wear them. Um, TikTok user Jazz E says, I've been making way more money with the new shorts. Okay, so Songer says, this is not what I uh, agreed to wear a year ago. Well, maybe not, but you agreed to work for a company called Hooters. What did you think that meant? Did, did, you, did, you, did you think that it was a... A fraternity of owl enthusiasts? Is that what you actually thought? Did you think you were going to work for a nature center? A bird sanctuary? Uh, I, I, somehow I doubt that. So this, this is what we find again, as usual, with this new, um, especially pitiful form of, of feminism, where there's, there's no personal... Talk about accountability. 
it's like women acting like they have no free will. Like they're automatons or something like that. Like you just woke up one day and, and you, 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 you woke up in a Hooters uniform working for Hooters with a name tag and everything, serving people hot wings. Or maybe like you were kidnapped. Like the Hooters showed up at your house. They sent, um, they sent their, their, their armed goons to your house and put you in chains and dragged you to, to go work for them. If Hooters does that, then I totally agree. Then, you know, I, I oppose, I oppose that. I oppose all of it. Um, but no, you, you decided, Hey, I'm going to go work for a place where the whole attraction is women wearing skimpy outfits. And I'm going to try to profit off of that because I'm going to make more tips working at Hooters than I would at Applebee's, presumably. You know, no one, no one's going to Hooters for the, for the food. We all know why they're going. So you, you make that choice. And then add, act victimized because you're being objectified. Yeah, it is. Is it degrading? Is it insulting? Is it objectifying? To work at a place called Hooters? Yeah, it absolutely is. I, I could see why women wouldn't want to work there. I can see why most women don't. This is why no daughter of mine is ever going to work for a place called Hooters. But that's the decision that you made. To go and work there and to objectify yourself. And here's the thing. When you make that decision. Now, you could make that poor decision and then change your mind and leave. That's a great idea. You could say, actually, I don't want to do this. This is incredibly insulting. Uh, maybe I will go work for Applebee's, which is only, which is only slightly less insulting. Um, you, can, you, know, you can make that decision. But if you choose to stay there in this objectifying environment where you where you have made yourself and your sort of your sexuality your body into a commodity when you do that you can't really start drawing lines in the sand you can try but you, you've already bought in to making yourself into a commodity so when you say I'm going to sacrifice I, you know I want to sacrifice my dignity but um uh, but but this little shred of it I want to I want to hold on to. I'll give you my dignity, but there's this, this little thimble full of dignity that I want to keep for myself. I can't give you all of it. You can try to do that. Many people have tried that, but it's, it's, it, it never works. Because once you agree to it, what you find is that you give up a little bit of your dignity, you end up giving it all. Better option would be to just keep it for yourself in the first place. That would be my advice. All right, let's get now to reading the comments. All right, let me see here. Caleb says, dad of three daughters here. Matt is 100% correct on paternity leave. My current employer gave me two full weeks of paid leave for the birth of my youngest. I recognize this is a luxury, that it is a discretion of my employer. My previous employer made me use my own PTO, and anything more than a week was frowned upon. When we had our youngest earlier this year, I did spend most of my two weeks caring for the older two girls and doing housework for my wife, especially because the baby refused to bond with me for a full week. Um, yeah, that is that's why I said before, paternity leave, whatever you want to call it, whether you're taking leave or not, 
um, or if you just have a few days like I did, like Caleb did, uh, if you have older kids as the dad, then that becomes your primary role. You're taking care of your wife and you're taking care of the older kids um, while your wife recovers and also is, is the one who's doing the lion's share of caring for the baby. So that's, that's, that is another one of the really important roles that a dad plays. It's just that this is a, this is a sort of a supporting role. And the thing is, that there's, there's humility in acknowledging that. And in saying, you know, when the, when the baby is born, really all through the pregnancy, the baby is born, uh, the, the mom, mom and baby are the stars of the show, right? They're, they're the focal point. And you as the dad, you're kind of, you're doing the grunt work. You're out on, you're, you're out on the edges. Um, you're, you, you're doing what's, what's asked of you to do. And uh, you're, you're picking up slack where you can and playing that kind of supportive, supporting role. And you would think for, me, for men to acknowledge that and say, look, that's my role after, when, that, that is my role here. You would think that feminists and women and, and the left, you, you'd think that they would embrace that and say, great. But no, it's like they, they got mad at me for not pretending that I had a bigger role, that I have a bigger role than I really do, which is interesting. Um, E432 says, you can make the argument that twins are harder, but oh wait, Mr. Walsh has twins and knows what it's like. Yes, dads can help more with twins. I nanny twins. But the four weeks of paternity leave he got was just too much. Yeah, twins, twins do, of course, twins make it a lot harder. Having twin babies is, is very difficult. That was our first way. We started with twins. We, we dove right into the deep end with it. And it was really hard. But the other thing is, also, no matter how much paternity leave you, you have, and I think my wife and I, we realized this, that because uh, I only had a few days and I had to get back to work. Well, even if you have four weeks, even if you have eight weeks, you're going to have to figure out how to do this with at least one of you working eventually. So even if you buy yourself four weeks, in the end, it doesn't really make much of a difference because you've got a whole life now. Okay, you've got a lifetime now of, of being a parent of twins. And at least 18 years of that life are going to be, there, there's, there's going to be a lot of challenges. So you got to figure it out one way or another. Um, LRT says, when are you going to do a review of the Let's Go Brandon rap song? Number one on iTunes. Yeah, I wanted to play that song. Okay, so I, you, I didn't know about it until you told me about it. Uh, there is a rap song, a Let's Go Brandon rap song. And um, I, I did want to play it, but... There's, I think every second in the song, there's an F-bomb. Bomb. Uh, it's, it's like part of, the be- part of the beat is the F-bomb. And so I, I decided not to do that. I had some mercy on our editors and I decided not to do that. So I can't play, but you could go if you wanted to and, and go track it down on YouTube. Um, I did listen to it. What's my review of it? Uh, first of all, I just want to say that it's, it's great that, you know, the rapper in that song is so, so supportive of Brandon. It's great that everybody is so supportive of Brandon these days. And um, other than that, what can I say? I mean, the song really spoke to me. It's catchy, but it has real depth. It has soul to it. I loved it. Too early to talk about where it falls in the list of greatest songs of all time. I think it's definitely in the top 50, no question about it. Um, And uh, beyond that, it's really in the conversation. Also, about the Let's Go Brandon trend in general, I I, I did want to say that 
I actually think that this is pretty devastating politically for Joe Biden. Not to make too much of it, but, but I mean that. The trend is devastating, not the song specifically. Though the fact that they're making songs now really tells you something. And i tell you why it's devastating politically. Because Let's Go Brandon, along with the more vulgar version of that chant, all of this makes a mockery of Biden, right? It makes him into a joke, into a silly, sort of contemptible, ridiculous person. And that's the death knell for a president or for any politician. If not the death knell, it's, it's, it's very hard to come back from that when you become a ridiculous punchline. And the left usually has a much easier job of doing this to Republican presidents, partly because they have the media on their side. Also because, you know, let's face it, some of the most recent Republican presidents um, have made it pretty easy for the left to make fun of them. But Obama never really became a joke. Um, the right could never quite get there with him. He was a joke in many ways, but he was never seen that way in the popular imagination. Even Clinton. Yeah, there were a ton of Clinton punchlines, but it wasn't, it wasn't like this, where, where Joe Biden is just a joke. He's this pitiful, pathetic, ludicrous clown. And there are a lot of things. I mean, you, you can make a politician. You can paint them. You, you figure out how you want to brand them as the opposition. You can brand them as um, tyrannical, as lawless, as corrupt, dishonest. You can brand them as, I mean, even, even incompetent. None of that. I mean, all of that they can, they can work around. But you brand them a joke. You brand them ridiculous. And that's hard to come back from. And that's kind of what, what the Let's Go Brandon thing represents. Uh, and I think it's fantastic. I think it's great. You know, for those of us who grew up before uh, smartphones and before, before, the, before the internet, it may seem to younger people like we have no past at all because you can't, you can't find our past on, on the internet. Uh, we don't have it stored away on the phones. Like, did, did we just fall from the sky one day? where we dug up out of the ground or something like that. Um, no, it's just that our past and our memories, they are stored on uh, antiquated technology like VHS tapes, photo, physical photo albums and all the rest of it. Uh, but don't keep them there. Don't keep them in that antiquated technology where they can be destroyed. Get Legacy Box. Legacy Box is your chance to have aging tapes, films, and photos digitally preserved so, the ability, so you have the ability to rel relive your family history and it's never lost because of a leaky pipe or summer days that make your attic hot enough to melt tapes. Plus, this week, Legacy Box is offering 40% off at LegacyBox.com Walsh, so you can start future-proofing your past today. The service is very simple. You put everything in the box, you send it over to Legacy Box, they put it onto a you know, DVD, they put it onto the cloud, a thumb drive, whatever you want to do. Visit LegacyBox.com Walsh to take advantage of this limited-time offer for 40% off. Take advantage of this exclusive offer today, and then use their kit whenever you want. That's LegacyBox.com Walsh to save 40% off LegacyBox.com Walsh. Well, if you've been searching for a daily morning podcast without an agenda, look no further than The Morning Wire, which has been topping the Apple and Spotify charts since its release. It's the only daily podcast that values your time and the truth. And while we're working overtime to bring you the news you need to know, we need your help to keep the facts trending towards number one. So subscribe and start listening right now to Morning Wire on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. Let's get now to our daily cancellation. So today we cancel a woman named Alice Evans, who 
according to her bio, is a lecturer at King's College London, um, a faculty associate at Harvard, and an author who writes about issues related to gender equality and the patriarchy. That's probably more information than you ever needed to know about somebody called Alice Evans, but you never know what you'll learn on this show. So the reason we're talking about her today is that she recently wrote a blog post, which she shared on Twitter, titled Smash the Fraternity. And in the post, she complains that um, men have an advantage in the corporate world because of the fraternal bonds formed through sports banter, she says, smoke breaks, and in the men's restroom. Now, if you're a man hearing this already, you're probably confused because you, you probably don't take smoke breaks and you've never held a conversation with another person in any restroom in your life. And I'm just as confounded as you, but we'll, we'll get back to that in a moment. First, let's hear from Alice. Let's let her make her case. She says, quote, Male bosses and male-dominated workplaces consistently fail to recognize and elevate female talent. Rewards and promotions go to those who put in long hours. Men can take advantage of this system because they're emancipated by women who continue to shoulder the burden of social reproduction at home. Thus, the contemporary system of employment is predicated on the domestic gender division of labor. Entrenching their first mover advantage, the male nomenclature tends to disregard women's expertise and resist family-friendly reforms. So if you really want to level the playing field, it's time to smash the fraternity. By the way, the word fraternity doesn't just refer to a group of um, drunken hooligans doing keg stands, right? Fraternity also means friendship, bonds, uh, mutual support and respect. What feminist Alice wants to do is smash male friendship. She's noticed that men can get along with each other, can develop bonds of respect, and she wants to destroy that. This comes as no surprise, of course. Feminists have always been driven almost exclusively by their desire, uh, their jealousy of men, and their desire to become men. And the thing that constantly reminds them of the fact that they aren't men is that they're unable to bond with men the same way that men do with each other, which means that those bonds are the things that they hate the most. That's why you should never marry a feminist or date a feminist or spend more than 45 seconds in a room with a feminist. She'll make your life miserable in many ways, ways you can't even imagine, but this will be a big point of contention. She will not want you to have male friends. She will resent your ability to get along with other men, given that she cannot get along with other men, or other women for that matter, or anybody. Back to Alice. She says, patriarchy has persisted for thousands of years. Um, yada, 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 etc. Skipping ahead. Male bonding is part of the story. Building trust and respect. Homo social schmoozing, talking about sports and sharing smoke breaks. So if you ever talk about sports with, with another man, uh, just so you know. You're engaging in homosocial schmoozing. Just never call it that when you're talking to the other guy. Hey, you want to do a little uh, homosocial schmoozing? No? Um, anyway, that accounts for over a third of the gender pay gap at one Asian bank. Likewise, in U.S. big oil, where women comprise 38% of entry-level posts, but only 10% of executives. Now, she continues to complain along these lines, listing all of the areas where men are able to socialize while excluding women. She's especially concerned with male fraternizing in the restroom. And she includes this cartoon I'll show you of a woman looking on dejected as a group of back-slapping men head into the men's room together with a sign that says corporate boardroom on the door. Alice also shared a message she received, allegedly from a man, going into more detail about all the um, gabbing and bonding that we boys do in the bathroom, supposedly. Here's the message from her friend. It says, With all your thinking about gender and management, I wanted to share this little anecdote. I used to work at a large organization, and I happened to work on the same floor as the organization's vice president, who was also a man. Sometimes I'd run into him in the bathroom, and while we were both using urinals, he'd tell me some new idea he had and often ask me to take some action on it. At some point, to avoid getting new work, 
I started using bat the bathroom on another floor. But it definitely suggested to me that with male managers, male employees get more casual contact and potentially more assignments with opportunities to succeed, even in something as simple as running into them in the restroom. Okay, let's just get one thing out of the way up front, all right? Ladies, take it from me. As a man who has been a man almost my entire life, literally 85% of my life I've been a man, um, and I've used hundreds of restrooms all across these fruited plains, the situation described here is as imaginary as Alice's friend. It does not happen. You do not need to worry about it. Men are not bonding in restrooms. We don't even speak in restrooms unless it's absolutely necessary, which it never is. We don't rest in restrooms. We don't take baths in bathrooms either, for that matter. We are business-oriented in that environment. We go in, we take care of our business, and we leave. We don't discuss that business with anybody. We don't discuss any other business while conducting that business. Male restrooms are quiet places, except for the sounds of dribbling and kerplunking, which echo through our chambers. Otherwise, we remain silent, and we, 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 we give each other space. It's an unwritten rule, which all men know, that when confronted with an empty line of urinals, a man must pick one on either end, never one in the middle, never one in the middle. The man who comes in next will pick one as far from the first man as he can. The next will again maintain that distance as much as he can. You never choose a urinal directly next to another man. Never. Unless it's an emergency. And it better be a real emergency. And you better be on the verge of your, your bladder rupturing. And even then, a decent man would allow his bladder to rupture in a dignified way. A dignified rupture rather than choose to pee six inches from another guy. These are the rules. They're set in stone. Maybe not literal stone, but in our hearts, in our souls. We as men are born with this knowledge. It's our destiny to follow these guidelines. We all know it. This may be more information than you ladies need, but I'm trying to explain that men's restrooms are not women's rooms. Despite the confusion our culture has on this topic, you know, that's not the case. Alice seems to think that because women will take a day trip to their local restroom and hang out there for 14 hours, pampering themselves, talking and doing God knows what, that men must have the same approach. We don't. You'll notice that men never go in groups to the bathroom like women do. We'll never see a man stand up at a restaurant and say, hey, I got to take a leak. Hey, Bill, you want to come with? In fact, if Bill does also have to go to the restroom, he'll wait for the other guy to come back and go and leave and come back before he goes. Or else he'll say, oh, you're going to the bathroom too? Well, I had to go also. You know what? I'll just get in my car and drive to Omaha and use a bathroom there. So you go ahead. Because men can never be far enough away from each other in bathrooms. That's the point. Now, there are some men who violate these rules. The men who treat urinals like water coolers. Not literally. Maybe they do actually drink from the urinal. Who knows? The freaks. But they'll, they'll try to spark a small talk exchange. There are men who do this. A few. Believe it or not, there are, there are some men who will, will, will relieve themselves in a urinal right next to you, even when there are other open ones available. We normal men always assume that those guys are weirdos and deviants, and we judge them, and we hate them, and are justified in feeling that way. They're the exception. The rule is as I have described. Now, I may be making too much out of this, but I, I think what we find in this bathroom issue is a microcosm, a symbol of feminism's great flaw. One of its great flaws, anyway. And that is that feminists don't know the first thing about men. They don't understand us at all. They have no understanding of who men are, how we act, why we act the way we are. We're not even that mysterious. It's just that they're that stupid. As far as men having more success in the corporate world, it's certainly not due to any kind of institutional bias in favor of men. All of the institutional bias, all of it, without a doubt, cuts against men, especially white men. But if we, have, if we still have greater success, some of that might have to do with the inherent masculine skill sets that men tend to possess. 
I understand this is heresy. I mean, all true things are heresy in a culture of lies. But men and women have different skills and they excel at different things. Men, generally speaking, may tend to be better suited and more cut out for some of these jobs. And some of that has to do with different priorities also. For all the talk about gender pay gaps and everything, the gap, if it exists at all, exists because women tend to make different choices. They choose different career paths. They take different routes in life. And that's fine. That's good. That's called diversity. One other point. If men are better able to get along, work as a team, relate to each other, outside of the restroom, I mean, that's not some kind of unfair advantage. It's an advantage, yeah, but it's not unfair. We earn that advantage by being direct with each other, by not taking things too personally, by not getting overly focused on personal slights, not getting involved in personal feuds and so on. Women can tend a little more towards the dramatic as evidenced by Alice seeing men walking into the restroom and imagining that they're hatching some kind of Game of Thrones conspiracy while they stand at the urinals. The slightly more stoic, emotionally removed, and coolly practical approach of a man often works well in business. It can sometimes cause tension and strain in relationships, though, and at home, which is why a man needs a woman to help him become more empathetic, more caring, more relational. There's no problem with this dynamic, unless you decide to make it a problem. And Alice is the kind of woman who likes to make problems. But business is about solving problems, not making them. Which is why she's a college professor, not a CEO. And it's also why she is today canceled. And we'll leave it there. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, as vaccine mandates hit home, police departments begin firing cops en masse. Plus, the New York City Council removes a statue of Thomas Jefferson. Remember when Trump said they would do it? Well, he was right. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. 